RUF, we believe that you're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace, and at the same time, you're never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. I am not beyond the need of figuring out how to use this thing well. That was a really bad pun. Um, All right, so uh, every semester in RUF, we uh, go through a sermon series. Uh, This semester, we're going through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, This is actually our fourth week of large group thus far, which is crazy. It's kind of hard to believe that we're this far in. Um, So I'm going to go ahead and uh, pray for us, and we can get started. So let's pray together. Father, we do thank you uh, for your word. We do thank you for this opportunity to get together and to study your word. Uh, And I do pray that you would help us to see um, Jesus clearly, um, and in so doing, that you would help us to see ourselves clearly. Uh, Will you open our eyes? Um, Lord, will you comfort us where we need comfort Will you confront us where we need confrontation? Uh, All these things I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, So tonight we're going to be looking at the passage Joel read, uh, Matthew 5, 17 through 20. And so thus far in the Sermon on the Mount, if you've been with us, uh, we have talked about uh, the Beatitudes, which are kind of the the opening to the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, And in that, Jesus is describing what a successful person looks like. Uh, We've also, uh, last week, looked at Jesus's kind of metaphor of salt and light for what Christians are supposed to be in the world. Uh, And tonight, Jesus finally begins to talk in the first person uh, and just kind of tell us something about why he came and what he came to do. And so the theme verse of this passage that we're looking at is uh, verse 20. Uh, It says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, So Jesus here is talking about righteousness. He's talking about righteousness. Uh, What comes to mind when you hear that word? Uh, If you're anything like me, uh, when when you hear righteousness, uh, maybe the first place you go is to self-righteousness. Like we see people who are very self-assured and smug, uh, who think that they know everything, Uh, kind of the the person who who grandstands in your class, um, kind of tries to show off and share how much they know about a certain thing. Um, but righteousness is, is not meant to be associated with that. Actually, in the Bible, uh, to be righteous, it means just to receive approval. It means to live a life that uh, is in right relationship with God. Uh, to live your life in such a way that both God and other people approve of you. Uh, and this is kind of a, a high bar on some level, but the Bible actually says that this is what we were created for. We were created to live with this sort of approval Uh, In the beginning pages of scripture in Genesis 1 and 2, we see Adam and Eve, our first parents, enjoying this sort of approval with God. Uh, The scriptures tell us that Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day, in the garden. They walked with him. And not only that, it says that God called them very good. Can you imagine what that must have felt like? For the God of the universe to look at you and to say, you are very good. That and nothing less than that is what you were created for. You were created to enjoy that sort of closeness with God. But if you know the story of the Bible, you know that there was a thing called the fall, um, where Adam and Eve, they they chose to to disbelieve God and to go against his word and his will. And in so doing, they created a rift. They created a rift between God and humanity. Uh, They created a rift between each other. Uh, Before the fall, Adam and Eve's relationship was described as saying that they were naked and unashamed before each other. And what that means is they were just, they were fully known 
and fully loved. But after the fall, they began hiding. We began hiding from each other and hiding from God. Uh, I have a friend who says that sin makes us hungry ghosts. Hungry ghosts. We have insatiable desires, and, and we're so desperate to be filled, but we can never, ever be filled. So even though the fall happened, we're still left for this desire for approval that we were created to enjoy. And I think this is why we try like so desperately hard to get good grades. It's why we try so desperately hard uh, to have like a perfect romantic relationship. It's why we work out so hard because we've got to have the perfect body. It's why we try to get a great job. See, I think we're just hardwired to desire approval. And we see it also in our entertainment as well. Uh, the movie Jerry Maguire, uh, the kind of climactic line is, you complete me, right? Who doesn't want to hear that? Uh, love actually holding up the sign, to me, you are perfect, right? <laughs> the office, Jim says to Pam, you are everything. Uh, Harry Potter, uh, you know, uh, Dumbledore says, after all this time, Snape says, always, right? We want this, like, approval. These scenes resonate with us so much because we want this sort of approval. We want someone to feel that way about us. And we're designed for that. We're created to live this sort of life, to live righteous lives before God and others, to have no doubt about our approval. In our passage tonight, Jesus is going to talk about how we seek this approval that we were created for and that we long for, but we have a hard time feeling like we can get. And in our passage tonight, we're going to see that there are kind of two false ways of going about this and one true way. So two false ways and one true way. Um, first, we're going to look at the way of irreligion. Second, we're going to look at the way of hyper-religion. And then third, we're going to look at the way of Jesus. So the way of irreligion, hyper-religion, and Jesus. So first off, let's look at the way of irreligion. If you would look with me to the beginning here in verse 17. Jesus says, uh, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Uh, so when Jesus says law or the prophets, he's using kind of a Jewish shorthand way of just saying the Bible. He's saying, do not think that I have come to abolish or loosen or kill or do away with the Bible. Uh, this is the first thing that Jesus says about himself. Like, why would he need to say that? It's an interesting place to start. And it's because in Jesus' day, as in our day, uh, there were people who thought that the way to enter the kingdom of heaven the way to receive the approval that they so desperately longed for was to distance themselves from the scriptures. When they looked at the Old Testament, they just saw so many rules that were just so hard to follow. And they saw so many burdensome things. You see, they might have even wanted Jesus, but they didn't want the scriptures. They didn't want the Old Testament. They didn't want the Bible. And what's appealing about this way, this way of irreligion, of rejecting kind of the religious classical interpretation of scriptures uh, I think the appeal of this is that if you look at the Bible, I mean, specifically look at the Old Testament, we're often going to be confronted. And we're going to see some unsettling things. We might even see some things that are offensive to our sensibilities. Like we might have questions, uh, isn't the God of the Old Testament kind of angry? Like, how does that fit with Jesus? Jesus seems to be loving and kind. Why do I need the God of the Old Testament? Uh, this is not a new way of thinking. Actually, this is very old. Uh, in the second century, there was a guy named Marcion uh, who kind of took this to the extreme. Um, he looked at the New Testament and saw Jesus and really, really liked Jesus. And he looked at the Old Testament and found that God reprehensible. 
And so what he did was he created a new Bible where he threw away all of the Old Testament as well as any sort of things in the New Testament that sounded too Jewish. Um, as you can gather from what I'm describing, he was very anti-Semitic. <laughs> Not a good look, okay? But this guy, he, he saw stuff in the Old Testament that he didn't like, and so he just went away with it. He abolished it. He destroyed it. He loosened it. And then a more modern example might be uh, Thomas Jefferson. I don't know if you've heard of the Jefferson Bible. Um, Jefferson was a very intelligent man um, who was very much a child of the Enlightenment, uh, believed in reason, and he's not going to believe anything unless he could see it demonstrated and proved in front of him. And so when he came to the Bible, uh, he found a lot of things that he liked. He liked Jesus' morality, even liked Jesus' life, but he didn't like Jesus' resurrection. He didn't like Jesus' miracles. He didn't like the miracles that he saw in the Old Testament. So he literally took a razor and cut out the parts of the Bible that he didn't like and made his own Bible. These are extreme examples, uh, but I think they're also a little bit relatable to us. You might not be coming to the Bible with a razor cutting out the parts you don't like, but I'd be willing to bet that sometimes when you open the scriptures and you look at things, you just kind of want to avoid what you see. Like you want to run away from it. You don't want to deal with what you see. So that's the appeal, but what's the problem with this sort of thinking? Uh, Jesus tells us in verse 18, he says, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Um, long and short, what Jesus says is that the Old Testament is as permanent as the world itself. An iota or a dot, those are just uh, little small parts of the Hebrew alphabet. Kind of the point that he's making is even the least part of scripture, down to the smallest letter, is not going to pass away. I love the way that Eugene Peterson says this in his uh, message, kind of commentary on the scripture. He says, God's law is more real and lasting than the stars in the sky and the ground at your feet. Long after stars burn out and earth wears out, God's law will be alive and working. See, from the perspective of Jesus, like God's law, the Old Testament scriptures are good and they're lasting and they're not going anywhere. And then he takes the argument further in verse 19. He says, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And what we see here is kind of a, a play on words that Jesus is kind of, he's getting at this idea that there is going to be a reciprocal relationship between how you treat the scriptures and how you're treated in his kingdom. So what Jesus is literally saying here is, whoever leasts the scriptures will be leasted in the kingdom. Whoever leasts the scriptures will be leasted. And in the same way, whoever grates the scriptures will be grated. See, what Jesus is doing here is he's encouraging attentiveness and, and love for the Old Testament, for the Bible in general. Uh, and if you, if you don't believe it, actually, if you look at the New Testament, you can just look it up, Google it if you want to. Uh, one-tenth of Jesus' sayings are direct quotations from the Old Testament. I would ask you, if you were to talk to me and find out that I'm quoting from something one-tenth of the time, uh, which I do, it's called The Office, uh, what does that tell you about what I think about The Office? It tells you that I love it. It tells you that it, it, it shapes the way that I view the world. See, that was Jesus with the Bible. Jesus loves the Bible. See, his self-understanding was very tied to the Old Testament scriptures. If you open up the Gospel of Matthew, it would be like impossible to understand who Jesus is apart from the Old Testament. 
And that's what he says in this passage. He says that he hasn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. We'll talk a little bit more what that looks like. So we may hear about uh, people like Marcion, um, who kind of did away with the whole Old Testament. Thomas Jefferson, who, who took a razor to the Bible, decided what he liked, what he didn't like. But what about us? I think I've already hinted at this a little bit. Uh, what do we do when we encounter a part of the Bible that we don't like? Like, what do we do? If you're anything like me, uh, I kind of have my specific parts of the Bible that like give me the warm fuzzies that I go towards. But then there's other parts that, that make me really, really uncomfortable. And see, I, I think this should be encouraging on some level when we see like guys like Marcion who had a problem with scripture and guys like Thomas Jefferson. It's easy for us to look back on them and to say like, oh, well, they were just people of their times. But the question I want to ask is like, what are your grandchildren going to say about you? They're going to say the exact same thing. They were just people of their times. See, the scriptures are permanent, as Jesus says. And not only that, they're good. So the life that is approvable, the way that we get this approval that we're designed for, according to Jesus, is not one that abolishes the Bible. It's not one that does away with the scriptures. It's not irreligion. But what is it? Well, it would be natural to think that if the problem on some level is irreligion, that is having no religion, rejecting the scriptures, then maybe the solution would be to be super religious. Which brings us to the second way, the way of hyper-religion. Jesus says in verse 17, I have not come to abolish the scriptures, but to fulfill them. To fulfill, it just means to fill to overflowing. Like imagine someone holding a cup, and Jesus is just pouring more and more and more, filled to overflowing. He's not doing away with the cup. He's just giving more of what was already there. You see, if the first part of this sentence where Jesus says he didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets was intended to kind of dismantle this irreligious impulse, the second part is to dismantle this hyper-religious impulse. Uh, He gets very, very specific on who he's talking to in verse 20. He says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And we've already talked about the scribes and Pharisees a little bit this semester. Um, But in case you missed it, the scribes and Pharisees were kind of like the religious establishment at the time. They were kind of Navy SEALs of righteousness. Like they were good at everything. Like they knew the Bible backwards and forwards. They had gotten down how many commandments were in scriptures. It's something like 280. And they added another like 30 to it just to make sure that they were being really sure that they weren't missing anything. See, if it was written in the scriptures, they had a clear understanding of how to follow it. So what's appealing about this way of the Pharisees? What was the appeal? I mean, I think we can kind of intuitively understand on some level, uh, having clear rules and structure can make us feel safe. Like if somebody tells you to do something that's really broad, like for instance, uh, in the Old Testament, honor your father and your mother, that's really broad. What does that mean? You can see how it would be appealing for somebody to come up with a list of three things that that means. And if you do these three things, then you follow that. Check, check, check. You see, it's really appealing to have a clear, attainable checklist for things like this. But what's the problem with that? What's the problem with that way of thinking? Um, So in uh, the office, predictably, um, Jim, Aaron, Dwight, and Kevin at one point uh, get assigned to work in the, um, in the warehouse. 
Uh, they're loading trucks because the entire warehouse won the lottery and quit. And so they just sent all these white collar people down there to try and figure all this stuff out. Uh, and Daryl, who is the foreman of the warehouse, isn't doing anything about it. So you have the salesman, uh, an accountant, and a receptionist downstairs trying to figure out how to load a massive amount of paper on a truck that's like maybe 25 yards away. And so they're sitting there trying to figure out how to do this. Uh, they start carrying boxes, and it's apparent that it's really slow. So they decide to come up with this elaborate system for how they're going to do it. And what they come up with is something they call Senor Lodenstein. Senor Lodenstein. Uh, it is basically just a, uh, a path, like of boxes, that's like curved, and then they put grease on the floor. And they have like a sled that they're pulling these massive boxes of paper to try to get them to the truck quicker. Okay, like this sounds like something that people who have no idea about like working in a warehouse would do, because that's exactly what it is. And so they're doing this for a little while, and it's like, I mean, this crazy looking thing, and then Andy, who is the boss at the time, and Daryl come back, and they're like, what are you guys doing? Like, we leave you alone to do this, and this is what you come up with. Like, you put grease all over the floor in the warehouse, and they ask Jim, uh, what is it? And he tells them, reluctantly, it's called Senor Lodenstein, and they're like, why do you call it that? And he says, porque es muy rápido. Um, <laughs> and so they demonstrate it, and it just does not work well at all, Okay. So they, what they were doing was they were taking something that was bigger than they knew how to do, loading this truck, and they were trying to create this system that was going to give them a clear way forward. Well, what's the problem? See, the problem is that it was completely ineffective at doing the actual thing it was designed to do. Just because it's a system doesn't necessarily mean it's good. And see, this is Jesus' constant problem with the Pharisees. This is the thing that he is constantly hitting them with in the Gospels. In their desire to find the approval that they long for, they turned the scriptures into a checklist. Like they came up with very clear, defined rules for what it means to follow the Bible. They added systems around the scriptures, and in so doing, they lessened them. They made them smaller than they actually are. Right? You can understand that. If someone gives you something that's overwhelming, making it smaller is a really easy way to handle it. So they took things that were gray or unclear and they tried to force them into a system that made them black and white. This is what hyper-religion always does. This is what this overly religious impulse always does. But how do we do this sort of thing? Uh, we might not relate to the particulars of like Pharisaic Judaism. I don't think many people do these days. But I think we do the same sort of thing. Um, to get at this, I mean, I just was thinking about this question. Uh, when someone asks you the question, uh, if you're a Christian, you'll probably get asked this question, uh, how are you doing spiritually? Or how's things going with you in the Lord? Or maybe how's your heart? Uh, that's a question youth pastors really like to ask. Um, if you're anything like me, if someone asks you that question, like the first thing I go to is like, how often have I read my Bible? How often have I prayed? Like, how are things going in that regard? So I'll say something like, well, I mean, I haven't been reading my Bible as much as I'd like to. I don't pray enough. Um, what have we done there? What have I done there in that moment? What I've done is I've turned my relationship with God into a checklist. I've added something on. I've tried to make relationship with God into a small thing that's based on how much I read my Bible and pray. Don't get me wrong. Reading your Bible and praying is a good thing. The problem is that reading and prayer, they're actually outworkings of a relationship with God, not the thing that establishes it. 
You see, we always try to shrink things down. And we think that's going to give us the approval we long for, but it won't. It's not going to do it. But what will? Uh, finally, let's look at the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus. If you would look with me back to verse 20. It says, unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, what does Jesus intend for his audience to do in response to this? Okay, so we just talked about how the, the Pharisees were like super righteous externally. Like they did all of the stuff. They fasted, they prayed, they tithed, they did everything they were supposed to do. Is Jesus intending for people who are following him to just be better than them? Like, I don't know, is there something better than Navy SEAL, maybe Green Beret? I, I have no idea. Is that what he's intending? See, I think what Jesus is saying here is that the, the life that gets approval is not irreligion. It's not abolishing the scriptures. And at the same time, it's not hyper-religion. It doesn't reject the scriptures, and it doesn't turn them into a rule book. But what is it? How can we become the sort of righteous person Jesus is describing? How can we find the approval that we're made for? Uh, so after college, I actually worked as an RUF intern, which is what Maggie does. Um, shout out to Maggie. Um, I was an RUF intern at the University of Kentucky. Uh, I don't know if you know anything about Kentucky, but uh, at UK, like, they're really into basketball in the same way that we're really into football here. Only difference is they're good. You didn't hear that. Um, but so at UK, the basketball program is really, really intense. They have this coach, John Calipari, who is kind of known for basically redoing the way that we do basketball. Uh, you might have heard of like the one and done, where someone comes from high school and then they do one year and then they go straight to the pros. John Calipari like perfected that. If he didn't invent it, he at least perfected it. Um, and he even changed the, the way of referring to it. Some people say one and done. What he says is succeed and proceed, which is just so arrogant, but that's what he says. Um, but when I was there, uh, there was this amazing freshman class uh, and kind of the highlight of the freshman class were these two guys. They were twins, Aaron and Andrew Harrison. Um, I believe both of them are in the NBA or at least one of them was uh, for a while. But they were kind of the, uh, the center of a ton of high expectations. Like, I mean, even the way that he brands it, succeed and proceed. The idea is you come in as a high schooler, you crush it at Kentucky, and then you just get this multi-million dollar, like, deal, and you're set for the rest of your life. Like, can you imagine the amount of pressure that puts on, like, an 18-year-old kid to perform and to do well? And predictably, Aaron Harrison, like, as the season was going on, he in particular had a lot of expectation around him because uh, he was an amazing shooter. But he started to get, I think, worried about his draft stock, and his numbers kept tanking. Like at the beginning of the summer, he was averaging something like 18 to 20, 20 points a game, and then by the end of the season, he was down to 12 points a game. Uh, things weren't looking good. His draft stock was plummeting. He was kind of freaking out. And so before the NCAA tournament, his dad, uh, whose name is actually Aaron Harrison, but he's Aaron Harrison Sr., uh, came to town and visited his son. Uh, and he sat down with him, and he just kind of asked him what was going on. His son had shared all the pressure that he was feeling. Um, he felt like he needed to succeed and proceed. Like he had to finish this season well so that he could go to the NBA, so that he could like buy his parents a house and do all that stuff. And his dad listened to him, but then he, he sat him down, and he just said to him, Son, like, we're going to be okay. Like Your mom and I do not need you to buy us a house. Like We are going to be okay. Relax. Enjoy playing we're fine, you don't need to prove anything to anyone. I love you. So his dad tells him this right before the NCAA tournament, and then this dude just goes on a tear 
through the NCAA tournament. He starts averaging 16 points a game. He shot 50% from three, including some winning threes against Michigan and Wisconsin to take them to the Final Four. And he said that meeting with his dad gave him his confidence back. See, this is a good picture of how Jesus' kingdom works. Jesus says in verse 17 that he came to fulfill the scriptures. Uh, Jesus has come to fulfill every promise. He's come to obey every command and to demonstrate clearly the heart behind the command. And not only that, he came to fulfill the negative penalty of the law that we have brought about by failing to follow it perfectly. And he did this by dying a substitutionary death and being raised. The question is, why did he do this? Why did Jesus do that? I think he did it for the same reason that Aaron Harrison Sr. came to talk to his boy before the NCAA tournament. What Aaron Harrison Sr. was doing was giving his son an unshakable identity. He was telling him who he was. He was telling him he didn't have to prove anything to anyone, that he was his son, that he loved him, that he already had what he was working so hard for. You see, uh, Aaron Sr. approved of his boy on the front end before he ever did anything. And in the same way, when we place our faith in Jesus, we are approved of on the front end. We're not working towards approval. We're giving it, giving it fully on the front end. The Bible uses the word justification for this. When we place our faith in Jesus, we are justified, which means declared righteous. And you might be hearing that and thinking like, oh, that just means all my sins are forgiven and it's a blank slate. That's only half of it. Your sins are forgiven. It's not a blank slate. Actually, it's Jesus' righteousness given to you. Such that when God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. That's what you're given the moment you put your faith in Christ. You're justified. You're given approval on the front end. Uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, it says, He declared him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If you're a Christian here, you are the righteousness of God because of Jesus. It's an unshakable identity. And because we are justified in Christ, we can obey the scriptures out of joy. We can be the sort of people who not only uh, read the scriptures, but we do them. And we teach others to do the same. Because we're not doing that in order to find approval. We've already got the approval we need. We're functioning out of that approval. Uh, One of my hymns says this really well. It says, uh, one of my favorite hymns, not my hymns, I didn't write it. Um, (laughs) If I did, it'd be terrible, but I didn't write this one. Um, But it says this, it says, To see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice, changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. So to see Jesus fulfill the scriptures on your behalf, to hear his pardoning voice, changes you from a person who works for approval into a child of God. That's amazing. In the same way we see Aaron Aaron Harrison went on a tear through the NCAA tournament because he had been approved of by his dad. When we know that we're approved of in Christ, we can become the sort of people Jesus describes in this passage. We can become people who do and teach the law of God. Uh, This frees us from being people of just external righteousness, like people who look good, and allows us to become people of a deep righteousness. People who not only are worried about what we're doing, but why we're doing it. You see, when we know how secure we are in Jesus, we don't have to be afraid of getting it wrong. We don't have to be afraid of failure, because we're justified. 
Because when God looks at us, he doesn't see a failure. He sees one who's justified in Christ. He sees his child. See, we don't have to be people who are anxiously trying to measure up. We can be people who take God's word seriously and who can laugh at ourselves. What a joy that is. We can be people who look like Jesus. Amen. Let's pray.